She has been affiliated with a number of imaginative and important theater companies during her career, including the 52nd Street Project, Williamstown Theater Festival, Naked Angels, and the Public Theater. This summer, she returns to Williamstown in the company's top position, beginning her tenure as the theater's first female artistic director. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and it's my pleasure to spend an hour with Jenny Gersten. Thank you, Howard. So the obvious question, we are speaking to you just before you make the official trip up to Williamstown. Um, What's going through your head right now (laughs) other than what to pack? Well, it's a lot about what to pack, and it's a lot of, you know, great deal of anticipation. We actually started our first rehearsal yesterday in New York City because we don't have our housing in Williams College yet uh, for our first production of the year. And on the following Tuesday, we start with our second rehearsal. So there's a lot of artistic stuff already very much in the mix. And so with all of that great artistic stuff happening is all the uh, problems that come with it. So that's in my head and a lot of just a lot of excitement. You know, I was at Williams. Town Theater Festival for nine years. I feel very fortunate to be going back, and it's a it's a just a very uh, fruitful and wonderful moment, actually. Well, you were there virtually concurrent with Michael Ritchie's term, exactly, uh, as the artistic director up there. But there have been at least some changes. I believe the new theater came online either just at the end of your tenure or just after you would have left when you were working with Michael. Right. For the virtue of your listeners, I'll say that the Williamstown Theater Festival was founded in 1955 and was housed in the former theater facility, which was really an auditorium, um, the Adams Memorial Theater. Um, And that was a 520-seat proscenium house. And uh, later we moved into a 99-seat, a second theater, which was a 99-seat, more contemporary, uh, three-quarter thrust. And uh, uh, in 2005, the Williams College, which is where we're housed in Williamstown, Massachusetts, um, so Williams College, which is our primary sort of facility, is uh, built a new performing arts center called the 62 Center for Theater and Dance, and that has a new main stage, uh, also roughly about 520 seats, and a new second stage, which uses the old Adams Memorial Theater, but went, now is 170 seats, so that's our second space. And that is a very big shift for the Williamstown Theater Festival. So you were not producing in those spaces that exist now when you were there? That's correct. The 62 Center is a new space for me. So... In thinking about taking over Williamstown, you're taking over the same organization, but a very different physical place in which to work. And I'm wondering how that plays into your thinking about your job. The spaces are different. The support space is different. It's very astute of you to, to to realize that, Howard. I commend you. Uh, I used to do this. <laughs> I uh, I have to say it's interesting because I was at the WTF when we were getting ready for the transition into the new center, and we all thought it was going to be relatively seamless. You know, the theaters are basically roughly the same size. They would be new facilities. They would have state-of-the-art equipment. It all seemed like a big win-win. But in truth, I think that there is a, a – 
what is it, memory matters, kind of, you know, there's a missing sort of quality that a lot of us who are nostalgic about the WTF of yore, uh, you lose when you go into a new fancy space. It also changes greatly the level of expectation when you go into a fancy new building as opposed to a sort of 1930s building that is basically an auditorium. So we're, we're looking at that and it's, we're addressing it. And one of the things we've done this year, um, just to tinker with it a little bit is to sort of run the main stage shows longer and actually eliminate one show. Typically, a season at Williamstown has four, or even in my day, we used to do five main stage shows in a season, each with two-week runs over 10 weeks. This year, we're doing three shows over 10 weeks. We're running them a little bit longer to see if there's time for more word of mouth to develop and uh, and also try to just uh, sort of build, build on the, the level of what those productions can be. Well, it raises the immediate question, which is who do you believe the audience is in Williamstown? It's, to some degree, a vacation community. People go up to the Berkshires for the summer, and there are many wonderful, very high-level cultural offerings in the area. Do you have an audience that has continuity? Do you have an audience that's there and says, what do you want to do tonight? And is there an audience you think you can reach that may not be coming? I think that there's a I think that we lost some people when we moved into the new space. I don't know if it was instant, but I think it's happened over the years. And so I'm interested in reaching those folks again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do you don't, think they were locals or do you think they were summer people? I think that well, I would say it's a combination of both. I would also say it's a combination of um, tourists and New Yorkers who used to come up to the Berkshires to see theater, you know, when the gas prices went up in the early 2000s, that really restricted tourism. I think that's starting to come back. The recession obviously had another impact a couple of years ago. So those are all things. But we actually just opened our box office yesterday and we're seeing a really great results already. So I'm feeling very hopeful that we're already recapturing some people and certainly anecdotally, uh, a lot of um, people from the New York City sort of theater community are saying they'll be up this summer, which is very gratifying to me. But one of the questions that has always existed for Williamstown, having spoken to several of your predecessors, is the issue of how much you're catering to the people who come up to Williamstown for the summer or out of the New York theater community because it's a great destination. And what exists in that admittedly small local community? It's very local and it's also rural. And that's a very different set of demographics to deal with that you're you're spot on for, for noticing that. And I think that if you do things that are of really good quality with really wonderful people, it's very even-handed and that attracts different people. Certainly when you program comedies or musicals, they tend to be more popular. But really, the Williamstown's mission is so much about putting together great artists and doing great classic work that that's sort of the main thing I look at. In talking about artists, again, there is such a history of what has gone on at Williamstown. They're certainly under the long leadership of Nico Chakaropoulos. Um, there became sort of the Williamstown family, and that extended yeah. into Michael's tenure. Very much. Um, how much – do you have to pay homage and include the family? And how much do you feel it's time to create a new family? Well, that's also a balancing act. Again, very astute. Um, I, uh, I'm definitely looking at the, the, the family is very important to the local community because it's been such a part of their relationship to the theater festival. And the one thing you can't feel like, the one thing we resist trying to 
produce is the sense of a circus kind of landing in the middle of Williamstown. You know, we show up with 350 people in the next three weeks. It's an enormous sort of wellspring of, of people showing up in this very small town. So to have people that are recognizable and that so they say those are part of our town and they know us here is a big part of it. But you're right. You have to look at the next generation of artists and what they're going to bring to the theater festival over the next 20 years and how those artists are coming back. A really good example is Jessica Hecht, marvelous actress. She's been up at Williamstown the past eight years. She's becoming the new generation of family. Lily Rabe, who's going to star in our production of A Doll's House this summer, is someone I look at as someone I'd like to see come back up there year after year after year. And um, and I can point to a bunch of different artists who are going to be part of this summer or people I'm talking to about the future who will become part of the next generation while we're still paying homage to the people who have been there in the past. Often, when artistic directors take over institutions, they want to set, put their own stamp and say, you know, show how they're different from what came before. But it sounds like you've got to deal with balance the tradition with with what can be new. Well, I'm really lucky in that way because I have a history with the institution, so I already represent in a certain way the former, even if it's a recent former past. I represent it, and I honor that by not only being part of the or institution, but also by wanting to work with the artists that have been part of it with me there in the past. Well, following on that, in the nine years that you were there as the associate producer with Michael, certainly I can assume that you had a lot of conversations with Michael about what the season might be and who might be a part of it. But when it came down to the decision, Michael decided. Absolutely. Maybe you didn't always agree with everything Michael chose. Now you have no the comment. chance. <laughs> I'll ask him. But – now you have the opportunity to say, you know, to put on the stage what you want. You couldn't necessarily do that at the public when you were Oscar's associate producer. You couldn't necessarily do that under Michael. What what's been your process in thinking about what you want to do? I mean, were there saved up favorite plays, or or did you, were you were you more strategic in saying I think this would be the right play because. You know, I have a surprisingly small list of plays that I really feel passionate about. And I'm not even sure that any of them are in the season. I think I'm saving them for when I supposedly get really good at my job, uh, if that day ever comes. And uh, mostly my process this in picking the season this year was working with directors, talking to them, sitting down with them and saying, what ideas are you interested in working on? This is what the Williamstown Theater Festival is. This is what we do best. And there's a variety of things that we do best, you know. And I was sort of a filter for what I thought were good ideas. Hmm. And that's how it was chosen. At one time, there was Williamstown and Berkshire Theatre Festival. Berkshire Theatre Festival actually even being older than Williamstown Theatre Festival, if I remember correctly. That's right. But they're separated by something like 50 miles. Yeah. Um, even though people on vacation or people spending time in the Berkshires will travel to both. Barrington Stage Company was added to the mix, I'm guessing maybe 10 years ago or so now. Do you program thinking about what is going on at those other theaters? Has it become more akin to the way, say, Yale Rep, Long Wharf, and Hartford Stage have to think about the proximity of other companies? 
You know, um, Julianne Boyd, who's the artistic director of Barrington, and I are good friends. We don't speak about what we're programming. Um, I think our missions are fairly distinct, um, but I think we do probably keep an eye on what the other one's doing. We pro- we program our season without independent of each other. We don't speak um, about it, but uh, so far it hasn't been an issue. I don't know that it'll ever be an issue. It certainly has never been an issue in the past, also with ba- with Berkshire Theatre Festival. But I am aware, certainly that there's more choices in the Brookshires than there have been in the past. And and Barrington Stage is a terrific company, and they're located in Pittsfield, which is a you know newly thriving cultural sort of scene. Um, but I, I still feel like Williamstown Theatre Festival's mission is distinct and sort of prominent enough that we stand on our own two feet. I don't want to be specific and go through every show and every artist that's, that's working there this summer, but I have to ask about one in particular, namely Lewis Black. Okay. Now, Lewis Black, as I recall, has a fairly long association with Williamstown, as even in his routines made jokes about trying to be a playwright and never really getting anywhere. And maybe some things got done at Williamstown, but never went anywhere beyond that. You've put a Lewis Black play into the season, and now Lewis Black is a famous comedian known for being curmudgeonly and angry and, and all of these things. I'm curious is that the choice of, of having a playwright who's a celebrity in a different way than just being a famous playwright being brought into the mix? Well, I consider Lewis Black to be one of those kind of family artists that you identified earlier in this conversation. Um, he, you're exactly right. He was in uh, Williamstown for nine years as the head of the cabaret. He was the host of our late night cabaret series, which we do sort of after hours. Performers just get up and sing, and he was the host. And certainly his stand-up persona is this sort of angry vicious sort of yeah curmudgeon's a good word too uh, uh, guy but he, you have to remember that Lewis started in the Yale School of Drama in the playwriting program and actually has a drawer full of plays and um, and the truth is is that Lewis having spent nine years at Williamstown and some very important years for him as his career sort of ascended and he had some you know uh, you know, really important times there. Really wanted to come back when I uh, was named artistic director. And so we got to talking and he sent me this play called One Slight Hitch. And I really liked it. The play is without any kind of um, vinegar. It's uh, actually quite funny and reasonably light, uh, sort of modern-day farce about a a woman on her wedding day sort of having to make a choice between the person she thinks she's supposed to marry and the man that she loves. And it doesn't have Lewis's sort of stand-up persona in it. It's, Hmm. It's a much different thing. He wants to be taken seriously as a playwright, but he also really wants to be back at Williamstown. He's going to be hosting the first two cabarets this summer, and uh, he's going to teach the apprentices. We have 70 apprentices coming up as part of our training program, and he wants to teach stand-up to them, and he's a terrific teacher, and he's taught before. And he really, he, he loves being up there in the Brookshire, so he's going to be in residence for a good chunk of time, beyond the time of his play. Since I brought up Celebrity, talk about the people who either returned or at times came once to Williamstown. There's certainly, it's been a place where fairly big names have turned up doing, in some cases, seemingly unlikely shows. Were you approached by people when you took this job saying, I'd love to come and do this? Or are there people that you reached out to and said, you know, boy, this would bring some attention to the season. It was a combination of the two. Sam Rockwell was the one who actually called me and said, you know, I'm, I've been working on Streetcar Named Desire with Jessica Hecht, and we'd really like to come do it. And it, 
it was a long conversation. We started talking back last summer, and it, for a certain time, it looked like he was going to have a movie, but then the movie fell through, so it all worked out for that show. But then with uh, Lily Rabin Doll's House, that was very much sort of something that uh, came up out of a conversation with a director, and we identified Lily as the right person. Now, I'm curious. You say that Sam Rockwell said he and Jessica had been working on yeah. the show. It's being directed by David Cromer, right. who did a very highly acclaimed production in Chicago. Not with them. Clearly not with right. them. Um, it's. I guess what I can say is it's going to be interesting to see how David's vision merges with whatever it is Sam and Jessica have been doing on their own. I agree. I think it's going to be really interesting. Physically, the production is going to be similar to Chicago production. Um, David Cromer's sort of interpretation of this play is to focus on the um, intimacy, I would almost say, the uh, claustrophobic nature of the Kowalski apartment, you know, and and how um, – don't forget that Tennessee Williams wrote Streetcar for a Broadway house, and we always know it whenever we see it is sort of being done in a big venue. There's often a lot of space devoted for a big street, you know, sort of in front of the apartment and a lot of exterior sort of a space. But it's really about living in, a, you know, a very tiny apartment and what sort of the tension that builds out of that comes comes from. And uh, – and so we're going to focus on that in this production physically. And then what Sam and Jess are bringing to it, I think they want the leadership of a director. And David's so great with that kind of intimate work and sort of that detailed writing that I think he's going to, you know, really be of service to them and their explore- their independent exploration of those characters. Hmm. Normally, this is the point when I start asking people, tell me how you got interested in theater. <laughs> but that would be disingenuous of me because uh, – on this program, we have interviewed your father, Bernard Gersten, uh, currently the executive producer at Lincoln Center Theater. and 26 years long. And previously held the same title that you did at the Public Theater um, back in the 60s and 70s. Um, and your mother, Cora Kahn, who's the head of the new 42nd Street Project. So we can jump right to – I don't need to ask when you got interested in theater, but you obviously had access – not even just to theater, but there was a period where your where your father was running Francis Ford Coppola's film company. Yeah. What do you recall as being sort of the key moments, the key things that you either saw or did that pushed you in this direction? Because plenty of children of theatrical or entertainment parents go off and become doctors. I think there's a couple different ways to look at this. I mean, first of all, my entire upbringing, I mean, I'm just a nonprofit nerd. So that the, t- the times around the dinner table were all about sort of how to run a nonprofit because both my father and mother, at the time my mother was running a dance company called Feld Ballet um, when I was a kid and, and my dad was working at the public and then other places. Um, and so it was a lot about sort of the the institutional issues that they faced every day. And that was very much part of the dinner table talk. It was not about my history test. Let me tell you. I don't say that bitterly. I was great. I loved it. And, and my extracurricular activity was around theater and dance. And so I don't, I don't go back and look at key moments, but I remember being around people who I just really felt, and this must have come from my mother and father directly because they view their work with such, um, you know, they're just beneficent people and they, they love what they have, they have ardor. They love what they do. So I think that energy rubbed off on me and I, I really enjoyed being around 
theater and dance so much and being backstage and getting to meet artists. I mean, the one, the early ones who come to memory, besides all the dancers, are you know like Raúl Julia and um, and Sam Waterston and people who were on the public in the very very early days. And you know, I didn't so much get to know their work because I was I was young, but I did get to know them personally. And and I knew and I saw the enthusiasm about in my father and my mother about what they did and that 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 had an effect on me. So, and then, you know, and just being around those kind of creative people and seeing my parents make opportunities for those creative people really just transferred. And that's what I like doing. You say the connection was to the people, which is very interesting and an opportunity not everyone has. Did you always understand what it was they did? I mean, was that just kind of there, even if you weren't seeing what they did? Or were they just nice people who your parents knew? I think I understood what they did to the extent that anyone could understand what a theater producer does without having done it. Mm -hmm. Certainly the minute you start doing it, you kind of hit your hand to your forehead and go, oh, it's problem solving. It's putting out fires every day. It's not, you know, my image of what it is. It's not, you know, sort of waiting for reviews to come out or whatever it is that people think theater producers do. (laughs) I don't know. Was there ever that childhood moment where you either were or wanted to be on stage? I and when I say child or teen years, it was it was I did a little bit of acting in high school and very quickly realized that I did not belong on the stage and that I was fine with that. Mm -hmm. And that's partly out of the fact that I saw so many actors come in and out of our lives who struggled every day Mm -hmm. to sort of keep their level of confidence up and, you know just keep going. You know, as much as I talk about the sort of notable people, there were plenty of actors who were struggling and I saw how hard that was and hmm. I knew that was okay if I didn't feel passionately about it. I knew that by like 14 that wow. if I didn't feel passionately about it, I shouldn't do it. Hmm. When you went to college, you did not get a theater degree. No. Did you do theater in college? No. I started to for a minute and then I thought, oh, I this isn't this isn't for me. I should just spend. I, I went to Oberlin College. I went to the Middle West, you know, the Middle, I mean, Ohio, and uh, I uh, from New York. That's from New York, it was a, a big shift. I decided to do four years of other, so I studied archaeology. Did you study it simply to do something else? Always knowing you'd come back to theater. Yeah, I always knew I'd come back, but I thought it was really important to do four years of something different. And it really, the anecdote is, you know, from my from my dad who always said, oh, you know, we've spoiled you raising you in this sort of environment and you should always think about all the ologies out there from archaeology to zoology. There's so many things you could learn and do. You don't have to do this. I feel like we've, you know, sort of spoiled you. And so I just picked the first one. I just picked archaeology. <laughs> That's not entirely true. I, it was a, there was more determination in it than that, but it is a funny story. Have you ever put it to use in your theater career? Uh, well, no, not precisely. <laughs> no, but I love that I have that background. I still like to look at you know old stuff and rocks and Latin and all the good stuff I learned and read about it. Inevitably, given your parents, you may have had opportunities to get your resume higher up in the pile than some people might have, but – Ultimately, you have to prove yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, So how did you start your theatrical career after college? Well, actually, I think my first job that I got sort of independent of my parents, and I don't quite remember how I came to this job, was I was um, 
the box office co-manager, which was basically an internship at the Eugene O'Neill Playwrights Conference, and that was when I was in high school. So I was there for one month in Waterford, Connecticut for the Playwrights Conference, and I came back two subsequent years, for two more years, as the house manager. Well, and I should say, the box office at the O'Neill Theater Center is basically a small, unair-conditioned shed that is open to, completely open to the elements, not computerized, not any of those things in those days. So, I, Howard, in your tenure, you didn't manage to upgrade it from um, 1996? We, we actually had <laughs> real tickets <Okay>. um, <laughs> when I was there. But, but there is something interesting about that experience of being in a box office. I mean, the, 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 the fact that the bugs could come in as easily as patrons, it's just a little bit of local color. Um, but as somebody who started in the box office myself, I'm wondering – you know, did that start to form an understanding for you of audiences in a different way than just sitting amongst them? Well, a couple of great things happened for me that summer and the subsequent years. First of all, I agree with I. Uh, I think that box office is a great place to learn about theater producing, just because it's it's unlike any other experience, and you learn so many different facets of theater producing by being the person who's actually handing out the tickets and talking one on one with audience members. There's it's a great education. And I just lucked into that because they had a position open for me there. Um, and now I can see why. Uh, and uh, the other thing was it was the first time I kind of established myself independent from my parents in terms of the the, the uh, industry. And so um, as much as I sort of wanted to be, you know, Bernie Gersten and Cora Khan's daughter, I was also forming my own relationships, which continue to be relationships I have to this day. And that was a kind of a fantastic um, happening for me that those summers. You then went to the 52nd Street Project mm-hmm. doing marketing and development, all right? I actually, uh, my senior year, I finally said, okay, now I have to transition. My senior year of college, I finally said I have to transition back into theater. And I happened to, because of the O'Neill, actually, uh, fall upon the 52nd Street Project. Um, an actor from the O'Neill said, oh, I'm doing these plays with Willie Reale and the 52nd Street Project. Come see them at EST. And so I went and it was un- it was theater unlike I'd ever seen before. It really was a kind of formative moment for me. Well, can you explain what the 52nd Street Project is? Because I, I don't think people can hear about it too much. That's probably right. Uh, the 52nd Street Project is located in the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood of Manhattan and works with inner city or um, – I think we can still call them inner city, although that neighborhood is being so rapidly developed. Well, but, depending on who you talk to, it's Hell's Kitchen or it's Clinton. Yeah, right. Uh, but kids from that neighborhood who are underserved, um, and they develop a series of mentoring programs based on theater. So some they teach the kids playwriting and have the kids write plays for professional actors to perform. They also have playwrights write ki- uh, plays for kids that um, they perform with professional artists one-on-one. So it's all sort of um, couched in mentoring, um, very much about making a great experience for a kid and also trips away out of the city to get the work done because in those days um, when there were welfare hotels and um, and uh, and even the Red Cross was in Times Square at the time, uh, there were a lot of kids who were being asked a lot, a lot of them for by their families. So it was important to sort of do these retreats out of town to sort of get them to do the work, and that continues to be true to a certain degree today. Um, it's now this you know burgeoning organization. Thirty years later, but uh, back then we were in a tiny little office. When I was an intern there, it was a one room you know 
10 by 10 office with one phone, one princess phone that we all shared. And uh, I was an intern there for my winter term when I was at Oberlin. I was there for the month of January. And then when I graduated Oberlin in June, they hired me as an administrative assistant. And about a year later, I got promoted to the director of marketing and development, basically because I turned to the executive director one day and I said, teach me how to write grants. I can help you. And so I started to show some promise as a grant writer and you know, was able to sort of make new connections and forge new sort of foundation support for the organization. So they promoted me. And I was there for five years. And, you know, the 52nd Street Project isn't specifically a professional theater, but it works with a lot of professional artists. So right. I was able to sort of continue to establish my sort of professional reputation, if you will, um, while I was doing work that was actually, you know, had nothing to do with equity contracts. <laughs> but... To some degree, self-taught, self-motivated in terms of you didn't have necessarily a lot of people at the organization who could constantly supervise you. It was too small. But it was an administrative position. That was the focus. So how then do you get from that to associate producer at Williamstown? So I heard that Michael Ritchie, who was this kind of fabled great stage manager on Broadway and around town – and who actually was a volunteer at the 52nd Street Project, but who I never knew that well, was interviewing for artistic director jobs. And I, I've been at the 52nd Street Project for five years, and I thought it's really time for me to you know, move, look, look about moving on. And so I called Michael Ritchie and uh, asked him to have a coffee with me. And I said, you know, Michael, I hear you're interviewing for artistic director jobs. I know a lot about nonprofit institutions. I've been raising money for the 52nd Street Project. I know how to write a press release now. I could be very useful to you in terms of your – if you get one of these artistic director jobs, in terms of helping you learn about a nonprofit institution because you as stage manager, while fantastic and have so many great relationships, may not know how to deal with a board, may not know how to write a grant, all those kind of like sort of nonprofit 101s things. And he thought that was really a good idea. So when he was named artistic director of the Williamstown Theater Festival, he said, come on board and be development director. And I said, okay, I'll totally come on board, but you're going to call me associate producer. And Mm -hmm. that's how that happened. So then over the nine summers, were you year-round for Williamstown? Yeah, year-round. Okay, so over those nine years then, did the position grow? Was did there become an artistic more of an artistic component and did you shift away from the administrative component or did you just keep adding to your portfolio i I didn't i adapted i would say that i started out very much doing development and sort of helping him organizationally just to support and then i gradually and then i did some work with um some of the the training program aspects of williamstown sort of the non-professional um directors and actors i was involved with sort of producing with them and then gradually it sort of uh, evolved into a more literary position where I was reading scripts and organizing a reading series for the theater festival and so forth and so on. And I was taking, you know, I, I didn't really have much to do other than I was sort of helpful to Michael in supporting the producing of the main stage shows and the Nico stage shows, but I was around. And, um, but I did ultimately sort of adapt away from development and into a more producing type position. So by the end of your tenure, your first tenure at Williamstown, um, had you been able to initiate or primarily oversee certain projects? You mentioned you know, the literary stuff and the readings. Or was it 
just kind of this broad portfolio of things that you were covering and Michael was still primarily producing the shows. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the stuff that I initiated was very much sort of under the radar, the reading series, the stuff with the training program, that kind of thing, not so much the, the stuff that happened on the professional level. So did you leave when Michael left? Yeah. Okay. Then you come back to New York. Yeah. Did you know what you're going to do right away? Well, Did you have no, something right I, away? In the interest of full disclosure, when Michael left the Williamstown Theater Festival, I was considered for the producer position, the, mm-hmm. for his position. And um, and I interviewed for it for several months along with a couple of other candidates and ultimately didn't get it. Um, and so when I didn't get it, I decided to leave. And no, I didn't know what I would do next. And um, I got a lot of inquiries about positions that were kind of on the management side of the uh, – the uh, the menu right. and um, and I always thought that's what I would do. I really did see myself as sort of you know following in my dad's footsteps and going into a sort of executive director or associate producer. That's sort of how I envisioned myself. And when uh, I interviewed for Michael's job, uh, I suddenly started to see myself in a very different way. And people would say to me, you know, you could run the Williamstown Theater Festival, you would be great at it, and you know how to pick plays, you have great taste, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, no, 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 that's not for me. But then finally I sort of kind of came around and I started to see myself in this light, and it was sort of a a, 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 a big moment for me, a shift. Hmm. Um, and so when I got out of the Williamstown job, I got approached by Naked Angels for their artistic director position and and after a few conversations – uh, I got to go there. Now, again, let's explain Naked Angels. Naked Angels had come together, if I remember correctly, mid to late 80s. That's right. Um, with a bunch of what we can politely call marquee names involved, wanting a place where they could go and do theater relatively under the radar. Is that fair yeah, to say? Yeah, I think at the time when they were formed, those names were not marquee. They mm-hmm. were basically, um, you know, out of just out, most of them were just out of NYU or they knew each other. They were no, recently, so it's only in hindsight that we, we think of it as being. Yeah. Well, they got that reputation pretty quickly because some of them sort of, you know, launched into really big careers pretty quickly. But they were basically just a young, really talented group of actors, writers, directors, and playwrights. It's where I first got to know the plays of John Robin Bates. It's the first time I saw Joe Mantello direct. Um, was in the late 80s at the Naked Angel space. They used to have a space on 17th Street. But it was a very, I mean, you're quite right, there was a very sort of uh, high profile to them. And they they were young and they were great looking and they were talented and they had through great parties. And JFK Jr. was the board president for many, many years. So they really had like this un- incredible profile. By the time I got there in 2004, Five, uh, I would say, you know, a lot of those uh, marquee names that you mentioned sort of moved on to different, you know, to different career, not different careers, but to a next level of career. They'd had kids. And so it was sort of a, a, a watershed moment for Naked Angels. Well, maybe maybe someone will berate me, maybe not you. Um, it felt like Naked Angels had really faded down, if not completely out. And when you were announced as the new artistic director, everybody went, oh, they're going to get active again. I mean, it was, it was, you were, you were the scene as, as the new energy and that, that something would happen. So did you have to 
revive it? Did you have to, you know, fan the flames when you got there? Or was there still enough structure um, for you to take over? Well, I think they had really tried to sort of, um, you know, stay sort of relevant. And they were being run by one, a great company member named Tim Ransom who really tried to keep them sort of effective and relevant and active, but, you know, may not have had the chops to sort of keep them financially solvent, which is the, that's the challenge of sort of being that main one person. And remember, this is a $300,000 organization. So it's not like you have a big staff to sort of keep uh, everything moving it was sort of one person doing the both the artistic and the and the the business side of the uh, equation so i think they tried to stay relevant and the hope was that somehow i would affect change um and i don't know how great i was at that but we certainly brought in some new younger writers and were able to do a couple of productions in my three years there so that was very uh, that was very satisfying to sort of begin a process by which naked angels started to re-emerge and i think they continue to sort of um, stay that course and, and and find a new relevance for that company, which is great to see. The opportunity to think about work that's going to be presented to a New York audience after nine years of being focused on work presented to the Williamstown audience, was there for you artistically a shift in in either what you were interested in or what you thought you could do? Well, what was great about that shift was at Williamstown, because my focus had been with the training program, the young directors, the young actors, and to a certain degree, some young writers that I knew from my work uh, sort of on this sort of under-the-radar level that I talked about at Williamstown. I was able to turn to a lot of those artists and say, hey, there might be something for you here at Naked Angels. So it was actually very smooth for me because it wasn't think- it wasn't about working with I don't know you know Blythe Danner. It was about working with these writers and directors who, uh, you know, six years ago people hadn't heard of and saying Naked Angels might be a place for you to try something out. Hmm. So it was very much about a focus of getting new artists into the company, even if they weren't officially company members, but they could maybe create the kind of work that Naked Angels stood for back in the eighties and hmm. and find a new generation for them to be working with. So then how did you connect with Oscar Eustace, the public? So it's a funny story. I'm good. I like this. <laughs> so at Naked Angels, I was um, uh, very much guided by Diane Morrison and Laura Pels of the Laura Pels Foundation. They both worked there, and they were very generous with me and very supportive, not just financially. I mean morally supportive. And, um, and they invited me to their board lunch, which is an annual just sort of lunch for a few of their board members, a couple of uh, – artistic directors um, who of theaters that they support and a few of their scholarship students. So it was me, the board members, some scholarship students, and Oscar Eustace. And I had never met Oscar Eustace. I didn't have any expectation of meeting Oscar Eustace. He was, to me, Oz. Uh, He's when, hard to miss in a room. Well, that's true. <laughs> no but matter how many people for some reason, we traveled in very different circles at the time. And so even though you know his reputation preceded him, when he was named artistic director of the public, I thought, oh, well, there is another – you know, 10 years where I'll never get to work at the public theater, which has secretly been sort of a dream of mine because my dad worked there. And so suddenly here he is at this luncheon. We're seated at opposite side of the table. I'm never going to get a word in. But at the end of the luncheon, we're both walking out and I said, do you want to share a taxi downtown? And so you're very shrewd. Unsuspecting <laughs> Oscar Eustace gets in a taxi with me, and I talk nonstop for 20 minutes at him. I don't think he got a word in edgewise, but and maybe I he can did. say, and I don't think Oscar would disagree. That's not easy. <laughs> 
I'm laughing too much. (laughs) (laughs) We're both in trouble. I'm betraying a confidence, yeah. So I talked at him for about 20 minutes, and then he got out at Lafayette Street, and I continued down to my Tribeca office. But that is how I met Oscar Eustace. And I met, I ran into him at a couple of parties. He's unmistakable. Uh, subsequently, and we had very brief chats at those. And within a few months, he said, I'd like to try and find a position for you at the public, which just blew me away. So when you were hired as associate producer at the public, you had had that title. Or were you were you That's hired right. initially as associate producer? Was that your That's, title yes, right yes, off? Yes, yes. We agreed on that title. Clearly, the portfolio of associate producer at Williamstown Theater Festival and associate producer at the public theater were different. Yeah. So what what was your bailiwick now? <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because all, while very different, Williamson operates in a 10-week season. Public theater pretty much operates year-round. My argument to Oscar was to sort of my, my rationale for what this position would be because they had four associate producers at the time. And I said, maybe you just want to have one person who sort of look overseeing all of the shows that you're producing. And that way you have one person that reports to you about what's going on just with the shows. And your production manager, your marketing director, every department head in the public has only one person to go to, as opposed to the associate producers of the past who had other responsibilities as well as sort of what we call line producing a show who might have split focus. And if you're in a production meeting for, uh, you know, Shakespeare in the Park, but you have a question about the upcoming uh, Sam Shepard play, you have to find someone else. Whereas if, you know, with the one person, it sort of hopefully simplifies the process. Because I was so nimble at Williamstown of having five shows in rehearsal at once, the public theater's schedule of producing, which is similar. There's a lot of shows happening, not such a compact season, but over a, a long Oscar course. Oscar keeps those theaters humming. Yeah, that's exactly right. I was very able to sort of use the tools I developed at Williamstown, keeping track of many shows, and also at Naked Angels by producing on my own, that the the, the skill set applied really well to this new position. In terms of size of institution, it was – I mean I know you said 350 people descend upon Williamstown for the summer, but they d- descend in a very short period. The year-round staff at Williamstown is relatively skeletal. Right. This is, by any stretch of the imagination, a large theater institution. Yeah. Was, was that – a challenge was that a change for you? Even again, having seen your parents in institutions, you know, that of that size, indeed, that institution growing up. Well, it was kind of wonderful going to the public because I'd come from Naked Angels, where I was basically the only real full-time staff member. At times, there were other people who came in and supplemented. There was always a few interns and, you know, part-time staff around. But I was primarily, you know, the main sort of keeper of the flame. And now I get to the public theater where there's a 100 full-time employees at any given moment, not to mention however many part-time and uh, actors and artists around. Uh, so it felt incredible to say, oh, we have a marketing issue. We can go to the marketing director. You know, it's just the idea that you could segment. And also the people who work at the public theater are incredibly skilled and fantastic at what they do. It's some of the highest level of people I've ever worked with in the industry. So it was a thrill to be there. In reading your official bio from uh, Williamstown, they talk about your time at the public and and she produced six Shakespeare in the Park productions. Um, she also produced the concert version of Paul Simon and Derek Walcott's The Cape Man, the brother-sister plays, Book of Race. 
how much did you have to do with the choice of those shows being done? And then how hands-on as a producer were you? As a producer hands-on, I was ve- I was very present and very uh, active. So it's more than just reporting in. I mean, you described about reporting in to Oscar on what was going on on the stages. It, it's much more than that. Right. I mean, in other words, because Oscar has to sort of keep what he likes to call the 30,000-foot view of things happening at the public, it's it's up to me to sort of do the, the micro work. And, and that's what I was doing with the staff and with the artists of any of those productions. Um, and it's and it goes from anything from you know budgeting to um, helping to come up with what the design is you know all of which is then you know given um, Oscars the the final vote on all of that including the programming I had nothing to do with the programming I just kind of listened and learned mm-hmm. but the micro sort of detail work was all the producer's job. I'm going to ask you a question that sounds like a job interview question, but I'm really curious because uh, you know I'm teasing out sort of how you come to then being a full artistic director of a large institution. What in your time at the public would you say posed the greatest challenge that you think you are proudest of how you solved? I think what was great is that for the time I was at the public, you know, what I said to Oscar when I first got there is, I'm leaving my job as an artistic director, which is what I want to be, and I'm leaving my sort of autonomous existence here at Naked Angels to come to the public because I want to be at the public and because I want to serve the institution. And I think I gave three great years of service to that organization. I think that for three years, I actually helped that institution run pretty well. And I feel very proud about that. That was a very politic answer. <laughs> I couldn't pull an anecdote out of you. <laughs> So coming full circle to where we started about Williamstown, I don't want to force you into proclamations of things you want to do two years, five years, ten years down the line. Um, But are there things that even in your first year, aside from this change about the length of runs and one less show in the main stage. Are there other tweaks and adjustments you want to make and, and in just your first couple of years? Well, the other thing that's happening in the programming this summer is the idea that we're doing sort of the revivals not on the main stage, but we're doing two revivals on the Nico stage, which is unusual for us. It's not unheard of, but it's unusual to do two big ones, especially plays sort of of the sort of canon, Doll's House and Streetcar, in the small space. Um, it might seem sort of antithetical to what Williamstown's about, but my way of thinking, it's a way to, for audiences to have a more intimate look at those um, spaces. And in a way, also true to the Adams Memorial Theater sort of heritage, I think it's partly out of a nostalgia for me because the Nico stage is the skeleton of the old Adams Memorial Theater. It uses the bones of the old auditorium. So for me, it gives away for the, those revivals, those classic plays that Williamstown is known for doing on uh, uh, in a more intimate scale of the 170-seat Nico stage. So that's something else I'm doing this summer that may or may not hallmark the uh, the Jenny Gersten uh, years. But <laughs> I say that with a tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> still not used oh, to the idea. Oh, there will be a plaque someday. <laughs> it, we, we know that. Oh, I don't know. Um, uh, I think the thing that I look at, and you touched on this earlier, if I if I I think the thing I w- I want to have mark my time at Williamstown is if peop- if we can look back and say uh, 
she helped the Williamstown Theater Festival grow into the 62 Center because mm-hmm. I don't think the theater has been able to really embrace its new home. You know, we're, we're in it. We go into – we walk into it every year. We come out of it every – we produce a bunch of plays there. But I don't know that we've owned it yet, and I don't know that it's owned us. And I'm really interested in trying to figure out – and I don't know what it means yet because it's a very unusual situation for a theater company to be given a performing arts center that it has had no sort of – say in how it was built but it's you know so that's a very curious situation and one we're looking to sort of embrace do you think the spaces themselves have a character that dictate what should be in them i'm not sure yet i'm test driving her this summer howard i'll get back to you you talk about the classics being on the smaller stage doing a new musical (laughs) on a main stage in your first season is pretty challenging. How did Ten Cents Dance come to be one of the three shows which inevitably have even greater pressure to perform uh, at the box office with audience than if it was four or five shows on the main stage? It's true. I mean, I, 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 I'll tell you that that project very much started in that in the way of talking to John Doyle. I had worked with this director, John Doyle, at The Public when he directed Roadshow, um, the musical, uh, at The Public a couple of years ago. And I really enjoyed my time with John. So I said, you know, what do you want to do? And he said, well, you know, I have this musical that I, I tried at Watermill, but I'm still developing it, and I'd love to reopen it again. And I think that the Rogers and Hart estate will be open to it being done again because the Rogers and Hart estate is very interested in making sure that those Rogers and Hart songs, which you so rarely get to hear theatrically because those musicals don't get done. So many of their musicals don't get done. Um, you see you Pal Joey, you see Boys from Syracuse, but that's about the extent of and it. And every time you see Pal Joey, it's got a different script. <laughs> exactly. So, But to have their songs live in the theater is was really exciting to me because I love – those songs. And when he handed me the script and it was just page after page of, you know, My Funny Valentine, Bewitched, uh, uh, you know, Blue Moon. And I'm not sure Blue Moon is in there. I don't think Blue Moon is a Rogers and Hart song. It is a Rogers and Hart song. And it's actually a Rogers and Hart song that existed outside of a musical. Oh, there you go. And I'll Take Manhattan and all these incredible songs. So I, I couldn't resist it, to be honest. You're right. It's a very big challenge to do a new musical. Luckily, John Doyle's really good at um, sort of starting from sort of the zero money sort of place uh, by having uh, – it was very much an economic uh, thing that he started at the watermill by having the actors play their own instruments. He was solving a budget issue. It turned out to be an artistic virtue and something that's kind of theatrical – theatrically wonderful but um it, it's very it's very lucky for us that it sort of keeps the uh the expenses a little more intact and so this is going to be because john doesn't always use right. that format yeah, but this will be an actor musician show yeah. akin to what people have seen with company and sweeney todd exactly it's a cast of six um it's led by malcolm getz the great musical theater actor and it's also led by donna mckechnie uh and uh, lauren molina and a great cast and they'll all be playing a variety of instruments we're going to teach donna mckechnie to play the sax and the drums 
<laughs> that sounds like you've got plenty cut out for you for yeah. your first season. But I, but I, I, and we got, and we have a partner in the McCarter Theater. They're going to be co-producing the show with us, which is a great fortune. We didn't expect that, but it sort of came about after we planned it. So they're a, a partner with us, and they'll be doing the show in September in, in Princeton. So we get some financial sort of leverage out of that. The term summer theater mm-hmm. is a loaded term, and sometimes people see it as different things. Some people remember summer theater as being classic summer stock. Williamstown was never that because of, as you say, the dedication to the classics that began with Nikos. Do you think there are opportunities for summer theater Things that you can do in summer theater, things that you can do with inevitably briefer runs um, that you might not be able to do, say, in a conventional regional theater or here in New York where all eyes are on it. I think that you're right to say that it sometimes can be safer to be outside of sort of the heavy glare of New York to do certain flights of fancy. I think that for a long time, Williamstown was known as a place where actors of a certain repute could go and sort of try something out and be safe. I think that, you know, Broadway's changed dramatically and it's now a place where an actor who's never been on stage before can come and try something out now and that's shifted the landscape. So I don't know that Williamstown can attract the kind of talent that it may be used to or it's a different sort of, maybe we have to find a new sort of way to to interest people to coming up there. But I think the safety of that, I think also the attractiveness of being with a whole generation of new young artists as part of our training program is a big draw for people. I know it's partly why Lewis Black is coming. I know it's a pull for a lot of people to have that interaction with a new generation of artists and seeing what they're doing and being part of that sort of symbiosis of that. And it's also just really, summer theater is just really fun. And so we revel in that, too. Well, I guess that's a good note to say good luck in your first summer as the artistic director of Williamstown. We should say you've been on the job since October. It's not like you just started work last week. But congratulations and look forward to seeing everything that happens at Williamstown under the Jenny Gersten era. (laughs) Thanks, Howard. It was really a pleasure to be here. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded at the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.